0: Okay, we're gonna go ahead and get started. Good evening, everyone. It's great to see you all. And uh, we're gonna be in Matthew chapter five tonight, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. This is uh, probably the most famous or well-known of all the sermons of Christ, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're gonna begin uh, this tonight and start with the Beatitudes, which are the first 12 12 verses. So we'll read our passage and then offer a prayer to God, and then we will have our Bible study. So let's uh, read Matthew chapter 5. We'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight, Lord, seeking and desiring to have, Lord, your blessing upon us. And Lord, your word teaches us, uh, Lord, where it is that we might find the blessing of God, Lord, the blessed life. And it lies not in the things of this world or even in the wisdom of this world, but in those things that are contrary to to this present age, Lord, through poverty and through uh, mourning, Lord, through meekness, through purity, Lord, a hungering and thirsting of righteousness, Lord, through persecution and sufferings, Lord, that these are the pathways that lead us into your blessed state. And Lord, that is what we want, Lord, is to have, Lord, not the blessing of this present world, but Lord, your heavenly spiritual riches pour down upon us through your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we pray that you would teach us tonight. Lord, just as you sat down and while you were on this earth, you opened your mouth and you taught your disciples. So Lord, we pray that you would teach us tonight. Lord, that you would give to us a mouth of wisdom. Lord, that we might be able to correctly and rightly divide the word of truth and that your disciples might be built up in their faith. Lord, that they might know your holy will and be able to do those things that are pleasing in your sight. So Lord, we pray that you would lead us into paths of righteousness for your name's sake and that Lord, that you would lead us into the blessed life and it is in Christ's name that we pray, amen. All right, so here we begin the Sermon on the Mount. And again, as I mentioned earlier, this is uh, one of the most beloved or probably the most well-known of all the sermons of Christ, a very lengthy uh, time where it gives us uh, a lot of teaching of what it was that he was teaching throughout his ministry. We remember that already the apostle has summarized the teaching of Christ with the phrase, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now in the Sermon on the Mount, we have an explanation or an expansion of what it is, what that means, right? Everything that he's teaching here has to do with repentance for the forgiveness of sin and the reality of the kingdom of God, that this is the life of those who are a part of the kingdom, right? That when we become children of God, there is a certain expectation for how it is that we are to live, how we are to conduct ourselves in this present life. And this is what Jesus is describing in the Sermon on the Mount, how it is that his disciples are supposed to conduct themselves and live in this present age. Now, one of the things that we should clarify before we begin is that it has been said uh, before that the Sermon on the Mount is an expansion or... Uh, a different ethic, a new ethic, uh, that's part of the New Testament. So the Old Testament had one way that people were supposed to live. And then the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a higher standard or a higher ethic that no one knew before this time. And I don't agree with that assessment that what I believe Jesus is doing here, especially when we get into these passages where he'll say, you have heard that it was said, right? You will, you have heard that it was said, you shall, uh, you know, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? You have heard that it was said, do this or do that. What he's doing in these passages is not rejecting, he's not uh, creating something new that was unknown in the Old Testament, but he is correcting false interpretations that are present during this day, right? The false interpretation of the Old Testament that was being promoted by the Pharisees, the Sadducees and other religious hypocrites During his time. So that's what he's correcting. Not that no one in the Old Testament knew that they were supposed to love their enemy, right? Right. That the Old Testament teaches us to hate our enemy, but then in the New Testament, we're taught to love our enemy. No, the Old Testament teaches us to love our enemy as well. So Jesus isn't uh, bringing something that was unknown. He's just clarifying, further reiterating the truths and the morality that has already been taught in the old testament and this is what the bible is doing from cover to cover right scripture interpreting scripture over and over and over again all going back to the prophet moses right and we'll see this in malachi when we get to malachi chapter four one of the last admonitions that malachi gives to the people is to above all remember the words of my servant moses right remember what moses said so what malachi is doing is simply providing an interpretation of the books of Moses, and what Moses had already taught the people, yet they needed to be reminded of these things, they needed to be corrected, they needed those truths that Moses taught to be applied to the various situations that they were dealing with in their present day, and this is what Christ is doing as well. So these are not uh, new concepts, new ideas that no one has ever heard about. These the, the way of salvation is one and the same, Old Testament and New Testament, and the way to live a life pleasing to God is one and the same Old Testament and New Testament. And Jesus and the prophets are in perfect, complete harmony with one another because all of them are speaking by the spirit of Christ. Right? Christ is the one who gave to Moses the law of Moses. And Christ is the one who ascends on the mount here and opens his mouth and teaches his disciples. So it's impossible that he would be contradicting what he's already spoken to the prophet Moses. So whatever he says here has to be in complete harmony with what has been previously stated in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and it will be in harmony with what comes after this in the Holy Apostles, because it is the Spirit of Christ who is within all of them, leading them, guiding them, so that there's harmony in all of Scripture, okay? So we shouldn't have in our mind then that this is something new and novel, something that was unknown that the New Testament has a better ethic than the Old Testament, that this isn't the case at all. Both of them are teaching the same standard, the same expectation from God. And this makes sense because he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. God does not change. So how can it change what he expects of men, right? It has to be one and the same for all time. Okay, so with that, let's begin Matthew chapter 5. Uh, verse one says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, here, we remember that the great crowds had begun to follow Jesus, right? This because of the many mighty miracles that he was doing, that this spread, word spread that a prophet uh, had risen up in Israel, that this man was here, he was doing these mighty things, things that had not been seen for many, many years, right? And even during the times of, in the old testament when miracles like this were occurring were few and far between right the ministry of moses the ministry of elijah and elisha those were the two prominent times in the old testament where many many miracles were performed there were other times where there were some miracles but mostly during the time of moses and joshua when he went into the land of canaan and then during the ministry of elijah and elisha well now here we have another time when these types of things are taking place among the people of Israel. And naturally, many people are coming out to see him and to hear, who is this man? What is he doing? Some of them are coming because they are genuinely seeking the things of God. Other people are coming because they're curious. They want to know what's going on. Other people are coming because they're skeptical and they want to test him. They want to trap him. So all of these kinds of people are around Christ and he's having to deal with them day in and day out which will be the same thing that we have to deal with as well. Okay, so this is what's happening, but there are crowds there and there's the opportunity for him to teach them. And we remember that Jesus is primarily, first and foremost, he came to teach people the word of God, the will of God, right? He is the incarnate word of God, according to John chapter one. He is the full final revelation of, Of the Father, right? No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. Christ reveals the Father to us and to the people by his mighty works and by his gracious words, the words that come out of his mouth. So he was a teacher of the Bible, and whenever there's the opportunity for him to open his mouth and to instruct the people, this is what he does. And this is how we should be as well. Whenever there is the opportunity to speak the word of God to someone, whether it's in a passing conversation, a short meeting, a longer meeting, whenever it is, whenever the opportunity arises for us to speak the truth into whatever situation we're in, we should take that opportunity. And if there's someone willing to listen, then we should be willing to speak. And this is the case here. They're coming to see him, to hear him. So he's going to teach them, right? This is what he has come to do. So he goes up on the mountain, right? Up onto the mountain to teach, which is reminiscent of Moses going up on the mountain to receive the word of God as well. So he's going up on the mountain and then he sets down, his disciples come around him. Then in verse two, it says, he opened his mouth and taught them, right? He opened his mouth. You can't teach without opening your mouth and teaching and proclaiming the word of God. This is the very purpose for why he has come, to open his mouth and to teach. And if we would be like Christ, then we have to open our mouth and what comes out of our mouth needs to conform to the word of God. We need to tell people what the word of God says, what God's declaration is concerning everything, whether they want to hear it or not, right? Because this is what people need more than anything else. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. People need to know what the word of God says above all other things. And this is why Jesus opens his mouth and he teaches the people. Isaiah chapter 50, Isaiah 50, speaking of Christ, the prophet Isaiah says this. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 4 says the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary morning by morning he awakens he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious I turned not backward I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard I hid not my face in disgrace from disgrace and spitting here speaking of christ the prophet isaiah is predicting his person and his sufferings but here he says that the lord has given me me being christ the tongue of those who are taught he had a gracious tongue a tongue filled with the knowledge of the will of god and the purpose is to sustain with a word him who is weary that's what he's going to be doing throughout the sermon on the mount beginning here at the very beginning with the beatitudes He's sustaining, he's preserving, he's upholding by his word, his disciples, because this is where our spiritual life is found. Our spiritual sustenance comes from the word of God. Amen. And if Christ came into our own day, and if he came to our church and was among us, what would he do with us? He would teach us. This is what he would do. He would get up and teach the word of God to us because he knows that this is what we need. This is where spiritual life is found. It's found in the word of Christ. And the more of the word of Christ we get into us, into our hearts, into our minds, the more it's on our thoughts, the more life we're gonna have, the more strength we're gonna have, the more grace that we're gonna have. This is what people need. This is why those churches that claim, or ministries that claim to love people and care for people, but never teach them the Bible, they don't care for them at all. Or if they do teach, they might teach what's false. They don't love people because if they loved people, wouldn't they do what Jesus did? And what did Jesus do? He opened his mouth and taught true, gracious words from God that are able to give life and to sustain life. Also, that's a point that should be made. It's not one word for the lost and another word for the saved. But the same word, the same word of God, will have its effect on both unbelievers and believers. The word of God is able to convert unbelievers and turn them into believers. And that same word of God is able to strengthen and uphold those who are already saved. So it's not, well, one focus of ministry for the unsaved or the lost and another focus for the believer. No, everyone needs the same thing. It doesn't matter. All we need is the word of God. This is what needs to be proclaimed to us. Also, Deuteronomy chapter 18, Deuteronomy 18, this passage of Matthew 5 to 7 is a fulfillment of what Moses the prophet told the people. Moses, which we'll refer back to him here in a minute, Moses was a very humble, meek man, and Moses knew and understood his place just as John the Baptist knew and understood that he was not the Christ, he was not even worthy to untie his sandals. So Moses also understood that, yes, he was a prophet of God, and he was a very important prophet, but he was not the ultimate prophet, that there was a greater prophet coming, and that's the one that they should listen to, is the ultimate prophet of God, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who inspired Moses the prophet to write what he wrote. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 says, "'The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet "'like me from among you, from your brothers. "'It is to him you shall listen. "'Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb "'on the day of the assembly, when you said, "'Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God "'or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. "'And the Lord said to me, "'They are right in what they have spoken.' I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever does not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So here, who is this prophet? Well, according to Acts chapter 3, it is Jesus Christ. Jesus was the prophet like Moses, but greater than Moses. Like Moses in that he taught the people, but greater than Moses because he precedes Moses in that he's eternal. And he's also the one who inspired Moses to say the things that he said. And he also says, if we don't listen to him, God will require it of them. We have to listen to Christ. Whatever Christ tells us, we must listen to him. And that's not merely the red letters right we need to read the red letters right the the red letters are the letters in the new testament that are the direct words of christ but in a sense every word of the bible is a red letter because every single word from the beginning of genesis chapter one in the beginning all the way to the final amen of revelation all of them are the words of christ and he is the one who has spoken all of them and we have to listen to all of them. And if we don't, he will require it of us. So that means we can't chop up the Bible. We can't divide it up into important doctrines and unimportant doctrines, essential doctrines and non-essential doctrines, commands that we have to keep and commands that are optional. We can't do that. If it comes from Christ, then it's not optional. It's his word. We have to obey it. And then we just have to understand it, do the best that we can to understand rightly interpret it listen to the word of christ believe it and obey it this is should be our approach to the holy scriptures what is the will of god what is it teaching me what does it require of me what do i need to believe what do i need to obey and then we should seek to apply those things and be faithful and consistent to the lord okay now verse three okay the beatitudes begins blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here, the blessed—the word blessed is where we call this the Beatitudes because it's describing the blessed life, those who are in a happy or who are in a blessed state. And one of the things that we see about these statements of Christ is that they seem contrary, right? They seem contrary to what we would naturally think, and they are certainly contrary to the expectations and to the wisdom of this present world. Because we do not typically think that one who is poor is blessed. One who is hungry is blessed. One who is mourning is blessed, right? One who is being persecuted is blessed, right? Typically, we think, oh, that's a miserable state to be in, right? I don't want to be poor. I don't want to be hungry, right? I don't want to mourn. I don't want to be persecuted, right? That that is contrary to my blessedness, yet Christ is telling us that those things are not contrary to blessedness. As a matter of fact, those things promote our blessedness, that they're essential to having the blessed life. So we have to believe the word of Christ and not trust our own wisdom, not believe the wisdom of this world, but believe what Jesus tells us about the blessed state. Now, this is also reminiscent of Psalm 1, right? Psalm 1, we know that the book of Psalms, That's my Joe Biden gaffe of the night. But the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms, Psalm 1, it's Ash Wednesday, and I couldn't help myself. So, say the union was last night. Okay, Psalm 1, verse 1. The book of Psalms also begins by describing the blessed life, right? So, the first Psalm is a beatitude, because it's describing what the blessed life looks like, and it's consistent with what Jesus is teaching. nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Right. This is describing the man of faith, right. the righteous man, the godly man, right? A true believer. This is the blessed life. It's to be a child of God, to be a true believer and to live a godly life. Well, that's the same thing that Jesus is describing here. All of these virtues, all of these Attributes and characteristics that are mentioned in the Beatitudes, these are only true believers, right? right? And they must be understood in the spiritual sense, right? That's what he's talking about here. So he's not talking about simply those who mourn, right? There are many people who mourn if they lose money, if they lose a loved one. Some people mourn if they're not able to commit sin. Well, that person's not blessed for, for sure. So we have to understand what does he mean mourning over What? right? Poor in what way? And that's what he's describing here. The first is the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, meaning those people who see, who know, who understand that they have no righteousness of their own. Poverty of spirit is a person who rightly sees that he is a sinner before God, that he has no righteousness of his own. He has no way to commend himself to God. And therefore, he goes to God and he begs him to give to him the very righteousness of Christ, right? It is only those who are poor in spirit, only those who see their need, who have this poverty, right, who will go and beg for true riches. Isn't that the case? Rich people don't sit on the corner and beg. It's the poor person who begs, the one who is destitute, the one who has nothing. He is the one that begs and must receive kindness from another. And so it is spiritually. We have to understand, spiritually speaking, we are utterly destitute of anything good, of any good thing. This is as it says in Romans chapter three, that none is righteous, no, not one. None is righteous, no, not one. We have no righteousness of our own and no way to commend ourselves to God. Now, The problem with this is it's very rare because most people believe that they are very swell people, that they are swell chaps, that they're going to make it, that they can do some good deeds. They may not be perfect, but God's a loving God, right? That's what everyone's telling them. And as long as I do my best, try really hard, and I'm better than Hitler, then I'm going to make it to heaven one day, right? Hitler and Stalin, they're going to go to hell. Putin, apparently, right now, but the rest of us, we're all going to make it to heaven because, right, we're all good people. But that's not the way of Christ. No, that is not the way that we enter into the kingdom of God. We have to enter in on our faces. We have to come begging God to give to us what we can never provide for ourselves. We have to see that we have no riches and God has all the riches and that I need Him to enrich me and I need him to give me what I cannot have on my own, which takes humility. We have to be humble and come before God in this way. And again, this is what is so often lacking. People are very arrogant and they have such big heads that they can't enter into the kingdom of heaven because it's a narrow way. Their head's too big and they won't be able to make it through, but we can't be like that. We have to see who we are in the sight of God, right? That's the key, right? Yeah. The problem with men is when they're assessing their own righteousness and goodness, who do they typically judge themselves according to? The worst they find, there. yes, they find the worst person imaginable, right? They find the worst person that they can find, they can think of, and then they say, well, I'm better than him, I'm better than her, so I'm gonna make it. It's gonna be all right with me. But who are we supposed to judge ourselves according to? Christ. We have to judge ourselves by Christ and His righteousness, right? If you want to be good and enter the kingdom of God, you have to be as good as God. You have to be as righteous as Christ, but we can't do that. None of us can be that righteous, so we have nothing on our own, and we have nothing by which to commend ourselves to God. Therefore, we must come humbly begging God to give to us His salvation, and this is the good news. This is the gospel. If we come in this way, what will God do for us? If we seek him, we will find him, right? If we come begging, he will give to us riches. If we come bartering with God, we're going to get nothing. But we come begging God and he will give to us, not meagerly, but he will give to us true righteousness. Yes, very liberally. And he will give to us the very kingdom of God. We will enter into the kingdom of God heaven. Okay, Isaiah chapter 61. We'll make a point as best we can to go into the Old Testament on many of these to show that, again, these truths and concepts are taught in the Old Testament as well. Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61. Verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. So here, this another prophecy of Christ, according to Luke chapter four, this is the passage that Jesus quotes from when he preaches in Nazareth in the synagogue And then they want to throw him over a cliff. This is the passage he preaches on. And he says, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. Now, does he mean the earthly poor? Those who are materially poor? Well, certainly he preached the gospel to them, but not exclusively to them. He would preach it to anyone, whether they were poor or rich. But only those who were poor spiritually, only they received his salvation this is the good news the gospel the salvation that he gives not to the poor physically but to the poor spiritually right to the poor spiritually because there are many who are wicked poor right and they will receive nothing from the lord nothing at all but it has to be those who are spiritually poor while we're in isaiah isaiah chapter 66 Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble, and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my work. Here, the Lord is teaching them, again, don't trust in their rituals, right? Don't trust that because you have the temple, because you built the temple, that you've done something for God by which he now has to give you his favors and his blessings. He's telling them that heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool, right? I dwell in heaven. That is where my throne is. The earth is simply my footstool. And then on the earth, you've built this temple, right? So what is that temple compared to the throne of God in heaven? It's, it's nothing, right? It's nothing, right? This does not uh, gain to you my favor and my blessing because you built a temple for me and because that temple dwells in your land and you are the people who go there. That's not what matters, right? What truly matters before God is what? Well, this is the one that I look to. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. This is the one who would be poor in spirit. He's humble. He's contrite. He trembles at the word of God. This is the one who has the favor of God. This is the one who will have the salvation of the Lord. We have to be in this way. That's what Jesus is describing here. The poor in spirit. And what do the poor in spirit receive? They receive the kingdom of heaven which is the salvation of God. They will enter into eternal life with God and they will be with him forever and ever and ever. He will give to them the kingdom. This is the father's will. This is what Jesus told his disciples, that it is your father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. He's going to give to his children his kingdom, meaning we will enter into it and we will rule and reign with Christ for all eternity. And who are those who enter in? The poor, the poor in spirit, right? Not the rich, not the proud, not the mighty, not the strong. They will be left out, but the humble, the poor in spirit, those who see their destitution and their need for God's salvation. Okay. Verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now, again, we have to ask, mourn in what way? Because there is godly grief that leads to repentance, but there's also worldly sorrow, right? There are many worldly people. There are many sinners who mourn. There are many idolaters who mourn, who weep, right? Even in uh, 1 Kings, when Elijah was there on the mountain with the prophets of Baal, they were gashing themselves open, right? Crying out to their God, right? Asking him to come, So is that who he's talking about? Is he going to help these people? What about Esau? Doesn't it tell us in Hebrews that he wept, right? He sought for it with tears, right? Whenever he lost his birthright, he was seeking for it with tears. That he was mourning and he was weeping. Did God comfort Esau? Of course not, right? So he's not talking about those who have worldly mourning or worldly grief, but rather he has to be talking about Godly sorrow, right? Godly grief. Right. And what is the cause of the godly grief in the saints, right? In believers. Why is it that believers would mourn before God? It's the knowledge of their sin. It is the knowledge of our sin and what we have done against the Lord that breaks the heart of the righteous and causes them to mourn before God and to cry out for God to forgive them and to give them his compassion, and his mercy. And those who mourn in this way, who mourn over their sin, what will Christ do for them? He's going to comfort them. He will come and comfort them in the sense that he will forgive them of their sins so that there's no more any knowledge of them. There's no longer the guilt of their sin, but their sin will be forgiven. So now instead of mourning, their sorrow is going to be turned into laughter, right? There's going to be joy, there's going to be happiness, there's going to be laughter, because God turns their mourning, their sorrow, which was good and right, but then he takes it and turns it into a blessing, and he gives to them his comfort so that now they rejoice, right? And this is the way of salvation. We have poverty of spirit, and then that poverty of spirit leads us to mourn before God, and then God comes and comforts us by giving to us the very blood of Christ, which washes all of our sins away. And he purifies our conscience so that we now have a renewed, a clean conscience before God that's not tormented by the knowledge of our sin and our guilt and our iniquity anymore, because we see that in Christ, all of our sins have been taken away, right? They've been removed as far as the East is from the West. God has stoned them behind his back and he's not charging us. He's not relating to us anymore on the basis of the guilt of our sin, but now he's relating to us on the basis of his son Christ and his blood and the justification that we have through him. So when we mourn in this way, then we will be comforted by Christ. Okay, a couple of passages. Second Corinthians 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter seven, in verse uh, ten. 2 Corinthians seven ten says, "For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you." but also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, is not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. So there the Corinthians had godly grief and the evidence that their grief was godly grief and not worldly grief, is what does godly grief always lead to? Godly grief leads to repentance. Worldly grief leads to death, right? They had godly grief. That's what's being described in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. This mourning is godly mourning, godly grief. It produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, right? Because who receives the salvation of God, and then looks back and says, you know what, that was a really bad idea. I wish I wouldn't have done that. Does anyone ever do that who has truly experienced the forgiveness of sins? You know, this wasn't everything it was cracked up to be. Of course not. Who's the one that has regret? The one who sins, right? When we sin, we have momentary pleasure followed by remorse, grief, right? Regret, it doesn't lead to what it promised. It actually leads to death and misery. But here, godly grief leads to repentance, and then repentance, salvation, and salvation is without regret because we have the mercy of God upon us. Okay, Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Also, it should be pointed out, <clears throat> while we're turning to Revelation, one of the proofs that the Bible is the Word of God, right, is the it's called the internal proof of Scripture. And what they mean by that is the content of the Bible is so sublime, so divine, that it's obvious that no man could have ever written something like this. How could a mere man come up with these concepts, these truths, these realities. It's impossible. So when we read the Bible and we see the depth, we see the righteousness, the holiness, how could a sinful man ever produce something like this out of his own imagination? It's impossible. It is proof then that the Bible originates with God because of the nature of the content, right? And these Beatitudes... They're so short and simple, and yet in them, you could we could spend weeks talking about each one of these and looking at scriptures that are describing and explaining all these various things, right? So the same with the Ten, the ten Commandments. Summarize in such a short ten, ten Commandments, and yet you have the entirety of all virtue and morality found right there contained in those Ten Commandments, right? So this shows us then, again, that the scriptures are the holy scriptures of God. They came down to us from the Lord. Okay, Revelation 21, and we'll begin reading in verse one. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and they heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any anymore for the former things have passed away. So there in the new heavens and new earth, there'll be no more mourning right? No more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow, right? Those things pertain to this life because in this present new heaven, in this, the present heavens and earth is sin, and sin is what leads to death, and sin is what leads to mourning, right? For the wicked, it will lead to mourning in their eternal destruction. For the righteous, it leads to mourning in this life, and it produces repentance. But ultimately, All of those things will be wiped away because in the new heavens and new earth, there'll be no more sin. But now in this life, as believers, right, we still have the remnant of the flesh. We still have to contend with the flesh. And since we have the flesh, none of us will be perfect. We will continue to commit sins against God. So then the life of the Christian should be a life of perpetual mourning before God right? Poverty of spirit and mourning before God. These are true of us at our conversion, but these attributes, these characteristics remain true of us throughout our Christian life, right? right? Because we never get to a point where we're dependent and relying on our own righteousness. We're always dependent on the righteousness of Christ. And we never get to a point where we as Christians are so perfect that we never sin. So there's still going to be sins, in which case we're going to need to mourn and we're going to need to weep over the knowledge of our sins and ask God to forgive us. Okay, James chapter 4. James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 8. James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. So here in speaking to the church, right? He's telling them they need to repent of their sins, right? The things that they're doing to cleanse their hands, purify their hearts. Right right now they have a double mind. That's not good. It's not good to be double-minded. We need to be single-minded. We need to be set on the word of God and not tossed to and fro by various winds of doctrine. So here, because of their sin, they need to be wretched. They need to mourn and they need to weep. Instead of laughing and having a good time, right, and having joy, instead they need to have sorrow, humility, be wretched, see your miserable state that you are in. And then when you see that, then what does God do? Then he will come and comfort you. Then you will have reason to rejoice and to be glad, but not without repentance, right? Not without repentance. Okay, then one last passage, Luke chapter 18 Luke 18, verse 9, says he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So there, this is the opposite of being poor in spirit, trusting in your own righteousness and then treating others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men so the tax collector is an example of someone who has, who's poor in spirit and who mourns. He's mourning before God. He's beating his breast, crying out, begging God to be merciful to me. So he's not like the Pharisee who's presenting to God all of his righteous deeds as the basis of why it is that God should bless him and why God should approve of him. He's not doing that at all. He's begging, coming to God for grace and for mercy and he has these characteristics, and who's the one that went home justified? The tax collector, right? The publican, not the Pharisee, not this so-called righteous man, not the religious hypocrite. He did not go home justified, but instead this sinful tax collector. Okay, Matthew chapter five, verse five. It says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Also, we notice in these that many of these build one upon the other, right? Those who are poor in spirit are going to be humble people. Those who are mourning over their sin have a knowledge of their sin. So they're not going to be, like we just saw with the Pharisee, comparing himself to other men, right? Looking around, I thank you that I'm not like other men, right? The unjust, extortioners, adulterers, or even like that, worthless tax collector over there, right? That's what self-righteous people do. They're comparing themselves to others, but not the one who's truly humble, not the one who has true poverty of spirit like the tax collector. He's not thinking about other people at all. All he can think about is the knowledge of his own sin and the fact that God has to be merciful to him. Well, when that is the case, the result is going to be meekness of spirit, right? That those who are true believers, because they know that everything they have, they've received from God, right? What do you have that you have not received? If then you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Everything we have comes to us from God. It's been given to us, granted to us by him. So what basis do we have to boast in anything? So then why would we seek to exalt ourselves in contrast to other people? Why would we then think that we need to be the center of attention all the time? And that's why... Those who are believers have meekness of spirit. Meekness is a result of humility in that they have a quiet, submissive spirit to God and a quiet, submissive spirit to other people. Now, again, this doesn't mean that they lack zeal. It doesn't mean that they won't speak up for the truth or that they won't get fired up when it's necessary. There's times when that has to take place. But the way they conduct themselves, right, is with meekness, right, with quietness, with humility, right, with submissiveness. They're not always seeking to promote themselves. They're not seeking to make sure that they're the limelight. They're the center of attention. Everyone has to hear what they have to say. They're not doing that at all, right? And this is why they're the ones who inherit the earth, right? The people today in this present world who want to inherit the earth, how do they take it? They take it by force, right? It is those who become the great, the mighty among us. They are typically the most vicious, right? The most calculating, the most menacing. They'll do whatever it takes. They'll stab whoever they have to stab in the back and they'll fight and crawl their way to the very top. This is what people do in this life. Whatever it takes is what I'm going to do. So it's all about promoting yourself. It's all about putting yourself out there to be in the limelight and in front of everyone else. And that's so that they might inherit the earth. But they're not going to. But even the greatest of men have never owned the entire earth. At best, there have been some men who owned large portions of the earth or who had kingdoms that expanded over large portions. But no man has ever even ruled this present world from corner to corner. No one has ever done that. I guess you could say Adam did because he was the only man at the time. But after that, no one did. And yet, this is what men want more than anything else. But here, it's not those who are promoting themselves, who are fighting and clawing to get to the top, who are putting others down and lifting themselves up. They're not the ones who are going to inherit the earth in the kingdom of God, but rather it's the meek, it's the quiet, it's the submissive right? It's those who are humble before God that God will give to them the very earth. The whole earth will belong to them in that they will possess the kingdom of God. Okay, a couple of passages. First is Psalm 37, Psalm 37, here this psalm is describing the attitude of the righteous man as he is observing this present world and especially seeing the prosperity of the wicked, right? Because the wicked prosper in this life because they railroad over other people and because they seek their own interests. And the righteous man is typically left in the dust in this life because he's not asserting himself in those ways, but he's desiring to lead a quiet, peaceful life. But here, the Lord is comforting the righteous man, telling him, don't worry about the wicked, right? Don't worry about him. Don't worry about his moment of prosperity because in just a little while, he's going to vanish and be gone, but it's going to be you, the meek, who will inherit the earth. Psalm 37, verse 10. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. Right right now, it looks like these people will never die, that they're gonna be here forever. How long has Nancy Pelosi been around, right? We've been seeing this woman for years, right? She's been a menace upon society, upon the world. Is she ever gonna die? And yet, what's gonna happen one day? She's gonna die just like Grinsberg did right? One day she was there. The next day we looked for her and the Grinch was gone. We could not find her anymore. She disappeared and now she's in hell. The same will happen with Pelosi. The same will happen with Hillary. The same will happen with Obama. The same will happen with uh, President Xi over in China. The same will happen with Putin. The same will happen with all of these petty dictators who seek to rule the world, right? Who seek to exalt themselves, and the wicked in our own life, those who harass us here and there in the church, right? In our families, at our jobs, right? Here they are doing these things. It looks like they're never going to go away. They're a constant thorn in our side. And yet in a little while, they're going to be no more. We're going to look for them, but we're not going to able to find them, right? They're going to be long gone. But in contrast, the meek, the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Who's going to be left? The meek, right? Not the wicked, but the meek. They're the ones who will inherit the land and they will delight themselves in abundance of peace in the new heavens and new earth. That's what he's talking about here. So here, the Old Testament is teaching that the meek will inherit the earth, right? They're going to inherit it. And what Israel possessed, a small portion of the earth was an emblem of, of what the righteous will possess for all eternity, which is a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Okay, another passage, Numbers. Numbers chapter 12. I told you we would look at a lot of Old Testament passages because it's good for us to see that these attributes were taught in the Old Testament as well. Numbers chapter 12. and we'll pick up in verse 1. Numbers 12, verse 1. It says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Here, this shows you the afflictions that Moses faced, yeah. even his own brother and sister, right? Who we know, Miriam and Aaron, they were true believers, but even they had a temporary failing in being jealous and desirous of Moses's position. Right? Why is it right that Moses is the top dog? Why is it right that he's the head honcho? Right? That everyone has to listen to him. Right? Hasn't God spoken through us as well? And Look, Moses married a Cushite. He married a foreign woman. He's not even married to an Israelite. So why would we put him up on this pedestal? This is what Miriam and Aaron are doing. Now, why are they uh, degrading Moses? For what purpose? To lift themselves up, right? To exalt themselves. Now, did Moses rise to this position of being the head of Israel because Moses outsmarted everyone else, was the most calculated where it was the craftiest, and because he outmaneuvered everyone, he was able to rise to the top, and then he was lording it over all the people. That's not what happened at all. Moses rose to this position by the will of God. He didn't even want it, right? God had to finally tell him to stop it and quit and rebuke him because he was saying, I don't want to go. Leave me. I, I want to just stay out here, mind my own business, lead a simple, quiet life, and I don't want to go have to deal with these people. Let someone else go and God said no you are the man so Moses had this position not by his own self assertion but by the will of God God gave it to him and he didn't he wasn't clamoring for fame and fortune and for position and then it says in verse 3 now the man Moses was very meek more than all the people who were on the face of the earth right they're accusing him of promoting himself, lording it over people, right? Of seeking only his own interest. But God tells us here that this wasn't true at all of Moses. As a matter of fact, Moses was the most meek man on the face of the earth. He was a very humble man, a quiet man. He just wanted to live live a quiet, peaceful life. This is the kind of man that he was. And then the Lord comes down and rebukes Aaron and Miriam and then causes her to have leprosy and then makes them go and have Moses pray for them <clears throat> as a way of humbling them and sell her to go outside the camp uh, to humiliate her, to bring her to her shame before they could uh, come come back. So here, Moses was a man of meekness. And is Moses an example of righteousness or wickedness in the Old Testament? Okay, so if Moses is a man of meekness, then wouldn't we think that this is an attribute a virtue that everyone in the Old Testament should possess, that we should all desire and seek for? Now, does this mean that Moses was a pushover? That Moses was uh, soft and he wouldn't speak up for the Lord? No. And it doesn't mean that Moses wouldn't get angry, right? Now, he did get angry the one time unrighteously, and God rebuked him and punished him for that. But there were other times where he was angry with the people in hot anger, And he was doing it righteously, like when he was before Pharaoh and he went out in hot anger from his presence. Or when he came down from the mountain and the people were worshiping the golden calf and he ground it up and made them drink it, right? That's the kind of man that Moses was. So he wasn't a coward. He wasn't a pushover. He wasn't effeminate, right? Like what's being promoted today. He wasn't like that at all. He was a real man and he was courageous and bold and he would say what needed to be said, but he wasn't promoting himself. Right? He was a man of meekness. And this is what Christ was like as well. We know Christ was not a pushover. We know that Christ would speak up and say what needed to be said. But he also was a quiet and a humble man in the way that he lived. And he wasn't constantly promoting himself. Now here he says that the meek are the ones who will inherit the earth. Okay, a couple of passages of what that means. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 11. 2 Peter 3:11 says since all these things are thus to be dissolved What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this is the earth that they will inherit. It's a new heavens and a new earth one where righteousness dwells. Not like this present heavens and present earth that is filled with sin. No, this world is going to be burned with fire and we're waiting for that day. And because we're waiting for that day to happen, how should we live? Holy lives, godly lives, right? Waiting for the day of the Lord and then entering into the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Then also Luke chapter 12. Luke 12. And verse 32. It says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here, he tells the little flock, right? The little flock, not a great flock, but a little flock of weak, helpless sheep. You're going to be the ones that inherit the kingdom of God. The whole world is going to belong to you one day. So instead of living for this present life, right? That's what is awaiting us in the life to come. Then don't live for this present world. Right? Don't uh, store up and hoard treasures on earth, but instead use the treasures God has given to you to be gracious, to be generous to others, and store up treasures in heaven because this world is going to pass away and along with its lust, and it's the one who does the will of God who will endure forever. Then one last passage, Luke 22. Luke 22 and verse... 28. Actually, we'll start reading in verse 24 because it has application to the topic at hand. Luke 22, 24. This is the opposite of meekness. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves for who is the greater one the, who is the greater one who reclines at table or one who serves is it not the one who reclines at table but i am among you as the one who serves so here jesus is contrasting himself with the gentiles the kings of the gentiles how this present world works they lorded over them Right? They are the ones that recline, the kings of the Gentiles, and then the people sit at their feet and have to serve them. Right. And typically in this present world, when we're thinking about who is the greatest, the one who reclines or the one who serves? Well, it's the one who reclines who is the greatest, and it's the one who serves who is the inferior. He is the lesser. And in terms of human rank and position, that's the way it works in this world. But how did Jesus come? Was he reclining? And having them serve him all the time? No. He was serving them, but who is the greater? Is Jesus greater or are they greater? Well, he is greater by far, and yet he's the one serving. So quit fighting and arguing over who's the greatest, right? You're not thinking rightly. You're not thinking correctly. This is worldly. It's godless, right? It's not from God. It's from the devil. Don't think like that. It's evil and sinful from the flesh. Instead, be thinking in terms of, service, of loving others, of putting others before you, because you don't have to exalt yourself, you don't have to try to claw a position out for yourself, because what is God's desire? What's he going to give to his beloved children? He's going to give us the kingdom anyway, right? It's already ours, so we don't have to fight for it. We don't have to exalt ourselves above another so that we have a greater place in the kingdom of God. We're all going to enter into it together. So serve each other, love one another, and then enter into our reward in the life to come. And that's what he says in verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's, that's where we want to be exalted. Not in this life, in the life to come. But who gets that? The humble. The humble man. The one who's poor in spirit. The one who mourns over his sin. The one who is meek and mild and lowly in spirit. This right. is the way that we have to be. Okay, so we'll stop there. at, And then we'll pick up next week. We had no intentions of covering all of these because there's a lot to say there and a lot to explain. So we'll take as long as it takes to make it through these and then it'll pick up a little bit more as we get into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll stop there at uh, verse five. We'll pick up next week in verse six, and we'll open it up. We have a little bit of time for questions or comments. So anything anyone would like to add or any questions, clarification?